Genesis chapter 2. And I wonder whether um, Ron, you could read from verse 5 to verse 7. And Ivan, could you read from verse 8 to verse 17? That's rather sure you could read the last paragraph. And no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not, not caused it to rain upon the earth. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in his in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted, and became four heads. The name of the first is Pishon, that is, which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Pledium and the Onyx Stone, and the name of the second ri river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Hidikel. That is it which goeth in from the front of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the Lord, <coughs> the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. <coughs> and out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto the man to see what he would call them. And whatsoever the man called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And the man gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for man there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, 
and clothed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. <coughs> Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife and were not ashamed. <coughs> and now we come this evening to this second chapter of Genesis. You remember that up to verse 4 really belongs to the first uh, chapter and that chapter 2 proper really begins with verse 5. Whilst I think Genesis 1 <clears throat> is tremendously instructive and informative, Genesis 2 is vital. I don't suppose there is one of us, including myself, in this room that really recognises just how vital this second chapter of Genesis is. If we hadn't got it, we should not understand well, quite honestly, one of the, the, the real foundation stone of the whole Bible would be missing. When we came to <clears throat> Genesis 3, we wouldn't know what, what uh, really it was about if Genesis 3 just followed straight on from Genesis 1. This chapter is absolutely vital. And if I, I do believe that if the Lord could only... <clears throat> really open it up to us uh, this evening in a new way and <clears throat> give us a real uh, inward understanding of what is here within this passage, it would probably give uh, a different complexion to our own lives. You see, one of the greatest needs is to understand what we are. To understand, of course, what we've become is a very, very great need. To understand what God meant us to be is also as important. We want to understand first what did God originally intend. That's very, very important. What did God originally intend in man? What kind of man did he intend? What constitution did that man have? What did he, as it were, first form him as? What was he like? And then we want to find out, secondly, what has happened? Why are we like we are? Quite different. We are a wholly different species to what God first created. Quite different. And then we need to understand uh, what is happening to us now that we have come to the Lord. Those three things are very, very important to our understanding, um, really, of the whole question of our salvation and indeed of the church, because it's all here within this passage. Now, you remember what we said about Genesis 1, don't you? <clears throat> we, you remember what we found. I can't go, we can't go back over it, but you can remember this we found there that man 
was the apex or the climax of creation. He was the crown of creation or the consummation of God's work. God, as it were, began with some of the simplest and the most profound things. Gradually, he built up a, a creation, layer after layer, as it were, foundation after foundation. Gradually, the whole creation unfolds, vista after vista. But in the end, he crowns it all with man. It's quite obvious in Genesis 1 that man is absolutely unique. And man is, as it were, the consummation of all God's work. He is crowned. Man is the top stone of the whole structure. And uh, we, we left it like that, didn't we, last week. When you come to Genesis 2, you find something quite different. Man is not the crown. Man is the beginning. Man's not the top stone. He's the foundation. Man is, as it were, the beginning of everything, and he's the center of everything. Now, that has led some people, quite falsely, to say that the second chapter of Genesis is an altogether different account of creation that you have here two accounts of creation which wholly contradict one another. Well, of course, if you want to, if you want to look at it from that point of view, there's a lot to be said in its favour. And I could spend most of this evening pointing out to you things which would seem to be gross contradiction to Genesis 1, if you want to take it like that. Um, for instance, it, it quite expressly says that man came before any plants or any herbs or anything else. Man was the first um, thing. God made man, and then all the rest flowed out after man. He made the plants, the, the, the herbs, and the trees, and the, the garden, and, and we find the uh, animals and the birds, they all come later. Whereas in Genesis 1, it all comes before and so they've said, of course, you see, um, also the name of God is different in this document, in the second chapter of Genesis. The name here used is Jehovah, whereas in the first um, chapter of Genesis it's Elohim. And they said, therefore, you see what's happened. Moses brought two contradictory accounts. They often say the second one in chapter 2 is the earliest and the most ancient. The other is a more recent one. And he's made a very bad job in editing them. He's sort of brought them together in a very, very poor way indeed. Well, I think really we shall find the answer quite, quite clearly. Of course, apart from anything else, there's no such thing as inspiration. And Moses wasn't led of the Holy Spirit. It would still be quite stupid to believe that view because we know and we understand that Moses was a very highly educated and cultured man. And I just cannot for a moment, even on human and rational grounds, conceive of a man making such a poor job of bringing two documents together in such a terrible way that he leaves the most gross contradictions uh, side by side almost. Uh, it, it's absolutely pure stupidity how people with minds and intelligences and an understanding of Hebrew could possibly... Uh, really uh, have held such views is in itself evidence of the amazing power um, of the enemy's deception. Amazing powers. 
be able to do it. Moses, of course, as you know, brought up in Pharaoh's court as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, given every kind of uh, advantage in education and in upbringing and social standard and everything else. Man that Josephus informs us was a man of mighty, not only in strength and valor, but in mind. Man who left his mark, according to Josephus at any rate, upon even uh, the Egypt of his generation. So <clears throat> even from that point of view, uh, uh, it's obvious to us that there's a reason why there are these two accounts. However, we've got something far, far more wonderful. We know that the Bible has been written by the uh, Holy Spirit. And therefore, we have got to find out this evening why, why has the Holy Spirit brought in now, uh, as it were, a second account of creation which is so totally different in complexion to the first. I don't think the um, answer is very far, really, from us. The key to the whole problem is simply something that we've already said, that um, the second chapter of Genesis is the purpose of creation. The first chapter of Genesis is the fact of creation. That is, how? Out of what did it come? Where did it begin? How? What, was there any method that we can define? Any um, method that we can see, if only dimly, uh, that God used? Well, if you're going to find any method at all, don't look for it in Genesis 2 because you won't find it. If there's method, it's in Genesis 1. And if there's an order, his, uh, uh, shall we say a historical order, you'll find it in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is the fact of creation. Genesis 2 is the purpose of creation. Why? <clears throat> Unto what? Where is it all going to? What is the goal of the whole thing? Here we've got the fact of it all. Here, as it were, God has revealed to us how the whole thing came into being. But why? Why go to all, all this trouble? Why bring all, all this into being? What is the reason? Genesis 2 is the purpose of creation. Simply, to put it in a few words, we could say this. Man was made by God for God. Now, that's a very simple statement. But you know that simple statement is the key to everything. Man was made by God for God. And if you look deeply into that, it's the thing we find very hard to believe, even as children of God. We believe it in the mind, we don't believe it in experience. We've got this inbred idea that we've been made for other things. We've either been made for this life or made for one another, or made for all kinds of things. We cannot grasp the simple key to the whole problem of humanity, which is that humanity was made primarily for God. Oh, 
free the of grass that if the Holy Spirit would only bring that into our, into our minds, into our hearts this evening, it would solve so many of our problems. They're all to do with the simple for who were we made for. We just cannot believe that we were made for God. And yet Genesis 2 just says simply, beautifully, clearly, man was made for God. He is, as it were, a vessel made for God. A, um, a, a being capable of holding God. And as such, he can never get anywhere and be satisfied or do anything really, until he fulfills the function for which he was created. You see, you've got, we've got to recognize that in creation, everything had a purpose. Everything had a purpose. It was all there with a function, with an order. Man had an amazing dual function that we shall speak of in a moment. He had an amazing dual function. He had a function, first of all, as it were, which was earthward, which it, he, he was, in that sense, the crown of creation. He was the top, you see what I mean? Like that, the top stone. And he, as it were, brought everything up in one great sweep into himself and became in one as moment, as it were, the height and the glory of creation. He was, as it were, the, the most unique, uh, climax to the whole thing. But from that point, man has another function which the rest of creation hasn't got, which goes from a point there up to God. He has that dual function in which, as it were, he brings the whole of creation together in himself as the apex and top stone of it. And then he, as it were, brings all of God down to a point into this earth. The most amazing dual function man has. Primarily, man was made for God. Let us get that clear. Now, of course, Satan's done the most amazing work and has left us really what Jews call the sensual brutes. That is, as it were, uh, creatures, animals. Now, just pure animals. We've lost our function, God will, and we're now just uh, uh, creatures that. Um, really are perverted. They are like a bird with broken wings. It's just, it's just not anything, really. It was meant to fly, and it well, can't fly. All it can do is drag its broken wings around with it. And that's humanity, you see. And in that poor, broken state of failure, it's trying to somehow satisfy itself and grovel around trying somehow in its deceived state to find really what is um, the satisfying answer <coughs> to it. So you see, this second chapter of Genesis, the key to it is the purpose of God, the purpose of creation. And that purpose is simply bound up in an inextricable way with man himself. I don't think it's going too far to say that man is the purpose of creation. Of course, we know the Lord Jesus is the supreme and primary cause of creation. But man was never, I believe, in the thought of God ever apart from Christ. From the very beginning, man was always seen as the complement of Christ. 
And I do not believe for a moment that God ever thought of man as, as outside of that sphere. He saw him from the beginning as the complement of Christ. And you've got it in the second chapter of Genesis. You've got the tree of life in the midst of the garden. And you've got this whole question of marriage. You've got it there in the second chapter. The whole basic meaning of God in this creation of man of this whole um, order. It was that uh, man should, as it were, with God, move into uh, and on into all the fullness of God. So you will note, I think, three things about this chapter before we actually look at it in a more detailed way. The first is the place of man in this chapter. First of all, you will see that this whole chapter is to do with relationships. First of all, it is the relationship of man to the Lord God. You will notice that the Lord God is the Father of man's spirit and the creator of him, of his soul. The relationship of man to God. That is why Adam is called the son of God. Not, the, not, as it were, a creation of God. He was the creation of God. His body was the creation of God. His soul was the creation of God. But God was his father in that God produced him by breathing something of himself into him. Man was in the most remarkable way conceived. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That wasn't a creation. That was something of God going into man and forming a link, a unity between God and man, which can only be likened to father and son. So you've got the relationship there of the Lord God and man. And then you've got the relationship also of... Um, the, to the tree of life. You will see that a, a lot in this chapter is to do with the tree of life. It is in the midst of the garden. Uh, Adam later on is told quite clearly that he must not take up the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the tree of life is evidently open for his coming. That's very interesting. and We shall see a little later. The relationship of man to the tree of life is set forth here. He has a relationship to that. But it's whatever the tree of life stands for symbolically, man has a relationship to that. It's in the midst of the garden. It's not in some corner of the garden. It's not hidden away. It's right in the midst. It's evidently, as it were in God's thought, the very center of the garden. Something of supreme importance in the midst of the garden. Where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, we're not told. It just says, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It may be in some pokey part of the garden, some hole in the garden, some corner of the garden. But the tree of life was right in the midst. It had a central place in the midst. And straight away, man's relationship to the tree of life, that stands for symbolically, is set forth. Then again, another thing you'll find in here, is man and the vegetable creation, or however you like to call it. What is man's relationship to it? Man has a tremendous relationship, for those of you who don't like gardening, 
has a great relationship to the natural creation. And that's why so often with nervous disorders you're told straight away, you must take up gardening. Get into something, uh, you know, do with gardening. It's the most remarkable thing that nervous disorder cases are often told, uh, you'll laugh about this probably, either to do gardening or to keep pets. And you know, although that may seem very odd to you and old maidish in some ways, yet you know, it's, it's not so really. There's something that goes right back to the second chapter of Genesis there. You see, man, first his relationship to the natural creation is a very, very wonderful link. He was put within the garden to till it and to keep it. His place was cultivation. He was to cultivate things. He was to train things. He was, I suppose, to find out the very, uh, the very sort of laws that govern these things and then to adapt himself to them and to use them, to cultivate them. It's very, very interesting, man's relationship to the natural creation. Then you'll see his relationship to the animal creation here. He is the one who calls them by their very names. And... Uh, Again, you've got a very close link between man and the animal creation. Again, evidently, he was there in some way to subdue, the word says. Uh, I suppose that is to tame, to, uh, as it were, rein in, to discipline. Because things are without sin does not mean that they do not need discipline or cultivation or subduing. They may well need those very things to produce something even more wonderful, just because of cultivation and discipline. And then to, and don't uh, be horrified here, you see man in his relationship to woman also in this Genesis 2. The whole relationship of man to woman as well is set forth quite clearly. So you've got man in all his relationships in this second chapter of Genesis. Man is given then a central place right at the heart of the whole thing. Everything is centered upon and in that man and the relationship. And as I have said, the man has a dual function. Evidently, his relationships in one direction are out earthward. And as man is, as it were, the top stone and the... Uh, consummation of the whole natural creation, he, as it were, gives order to it all. Thus, you see, if anything happens to man, something happens to the whole creation. Not only to the natural creation, but to uh, the animal creation. Something goes wrong if man loses his place of dominion, um, as it were, of government, being at the top of it, as it were, um, summing it all up in himself. But even more important is God's function, Godward. His relationship to the Lord God and to the tree of life is the key to his relationship to everything else. If man is wrong with the Lord God and the tree of life, then he's wrong with the natural creation, he's wrong with the animal creation, and he's wrong in his own domestic relationships. Everything goes wrong if man is out of gear there. So, you see, the place of man is very, very important in this chapter. Then, again, I want you to notice about this chapter uh, a second thing. It has a figurative nature. 
Now, <clears throat> that's quite clear. I know some may wonder what exactly I'm going to get at here. But the second chapter of Genesis has a figurative nature. There is nothing whatsoever in Genesis 1 which has a figurative nature. It is all clear-cut, simple, and simple. But Genesis 2 has about it all the oriental imagery. It's speaking almost from the beginning in figure. It pays no heed to historic order. It pays very little heed to um, that side at all. The whole of this chapter is setting forth things in symbol form. And you've got it again and again. The tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The rivers. These mighty rivers that flow out to the, almost the four corners of the earth, if you take them here. And then this little phrase which has bewildered so many people, gold, delium, and the onyx stone. What's this talking about? Why is that here uh, in this chapter? Then Eden itself. No one knows where Eden is. There's been a tremendous amount of conjecture as to where Eden is. I suppose it's been there. Uh, Upon nothing else has there been quite so much uh, variety uh, of view as to where Eden is. Some people put it right over in the Ganges, some have put it up in the steppes of Russia, other people have brought it right over to Turkey, other people have put it down in Arabia, some have gone farther afield. Oh, it's amazing if you try to find some of the views of the fathers and other the reformers and others. Where was Eden? But Eden itself has one simple meaning. It means delight. And there you've got the key to it all. God never meant us to, to sort of spend hours and hours and hours and hours trying to define exactly where Eden was. Eden has a meaning. And the tree of life has got a meaning. Go and look for the tree of life today. You won't find it amongst the trees. Neither will you find the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is quite clear, you see. The Oriental has always passed from the real to the symbolical so easily and back again. And that's what always befuddles the Western mind. You can't quite understand. So we in the West are very clear. You see, if we're going to talk in a nice fairy-like language, we're quite clear that we're talking. But everything's ridiculous. Look at Hans Anderson's fairy tales. See? I mean, from the beginning, you see, um, uh, geese turn into women and women turn into geese and uh, this happens here and houses vanish and things like that. But you see, the, the audience, no, no, everything's so real. And then suddenly, you've gone into symbolism. And that confuses us. And then you're back again into reality. And then you're back again into symbol. And so you go backwards and forwards, alternating between the two, in a way that we in the West are far too taped and uh, analytical to allow. Either you've got to be that or this. But, you uh, know, here you've got something which in its very nature is symbolical. And we've got to understand that if we're going to understand Genesis 2. And then the third thing may seem to contradict what I've said. The Genesis 2 is in many ways an amplification of Genesis 1. Whilst it speaks in a symbolical way, there are parts of it which amplify what we find in Genesis 1. For instance, <coughs> no mention of rain in Genesis 1, and yet we've got rain here mentioned, and it's a very, nece it's very necessary function. No mention of mists or dew, 
and yet here we have the mists or the dew uh, distinctly mentioned. We have no mention of the creation and constitution of man in a more detailed way. Here we've got a very full account of the creation and the constitution of man. In Genesis 1 we've just told that male and female created he then. But here we have a quite long and detailed account of the creation of woman. So you see that in many ways Genesis 2 amplifies quite uh, a lot of Genesis 1. Then I want you to notice something else about this second chapter. I want you to mark how wonderfully instructive, in the light of all that I've said, is the very vocabulary of Genesis 2. Its vocabulary, even here in your English version, if you read it carefully, as compared to Genesis 1, you will be amazed at its vocabulary. It's so different. The very words used are different. The very feel of them, the, the whole sort of background of the words used, is different to Genesis 1. Take a few of them. For instance, we've already mentioned all of these words suggest purpose, and they all suggest destiny. For instance, the very first thing you come across is the Lord God. Up to now there's been no mention of the Lord God. But now we come Jehovah God. And immediately, what does that bring into view? It brings into view God in his covenant relationship with his people. Here God is found not as the mighty God of creation and of omnipotence, but here you find God in his intimate, personal yearning to find a dwelling place in his people, to be able to walk amongst them, live in them, and they in him become as it were a unity, a unity. <coughs> there you have that straight away in verse 5 and a number of other verses. And then in verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 19, you have the little word to form, which means to, as I think I've already men mentioned, to fashion, as the potter does the clay, to constitute, to plan, is its root meaning, or even preordained. Preordained. The Arabic form today is covenant or contract. So you see, God here doesn't create man, and he doesn't make man. He forms man, and the whole thought behind it is a forming with a mind, a forming with an end in view, a forming with a covenant in view, a forming, as it were, according to a contract that God has made. He's got a great purpose in this man. Everything's formed. It even talks of the animals being formed out of the ground. All got a purpose in it. And then again another word you'll find in here. In verse 22, And out of the rib he made woman. And the word is not the only word we've mentioned so often to make, but it is the word to build up. Out of this rib he built it up. He built up, we've got it in the New Testament in its form, to edify, to build up. He built it up, the woman. There's a plan behind that. There's a purpose behind it. He didn't just make the simple word. But he had a plan in mind. And then you've got in verse 8 the word planted. That is a suggestive word. In Genesis 1, there's no word like that. You don't find the word planted. God calls to sprout. 
He caused to grow, caused to germinate. Here, God planted, which again suggests a purpose in his mind. Then you've got the word in verse 8, verse 10 and verse 15, a garden. You don't get a suggestion of a garden in uh, chapter 1, but a garden always suggests a mind, doesn't it? In fact, we're often told that a person's garden betrays the person. Do. The mind of a person seen in their garden. It comes out of a garden is is a creation. So you've got a garden there. And then in verse 5 and in verse 15 you've got this word to till or to dress. You don't get a suggestion of that in Genesis 1. You've got it here to do service or to work. Something with a purpose in it. And then in verse 15, to keep, the Lord says, put him in the garden to till or to cultivate and to keep it. And the word to keep is to observe or to take heed. Now, you know, that's a most remarkable word. Many people have said, wasn't it wrong of the Lord to put Adam and Eve into the garden, all innocently, like that, and just leave them to the wilds of the serpent? How wicked. You know, you shouldn't do that kind of thing. We wouldn't do that with our children. We wouldn't put them in, in the very presence of some vile, ferocious, evil thing and leave them to it just to test out whether they'll be obedient to father and mother. People have said that again and again. But here the Lord put the man in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And it does not mean cultivate. It means to take heed, to watch it. The word is to guard. He was to guard. He was to watch. He was to observe. There's the possible suggestion there of a warning. Not only over the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but uh, of the possibility of evil things coming into that garden and, and deceiving. He was told to guard that garden, to take heed. And then in verse 19 and verse 20, another interesting thing. It says simply, um, there was not an help meet for him. It says, I will make him a help meet for him. And then in verse 20, it says, but there was not found a help meet for him. The word meet literally is as before him. There was not a help as before him. But the word really means simply there was not a help answering to him. There again you've got something of a purpose. You see God's whole plan was a complement to Adam. Something that answered wholly and fully to him. Like him. Answering to him. Not him identically, but answering to him. Something original, something responsible, and yet something answering to him, vitally of him, bound up with him, and therefore, as it were, belonging to each other. That's very, very wonderful as well. So you've got there something, in many ways, in the very vocabulary of that chapter, which suggests this whole question of uh, destiny or purpose. 
Now let's look at um, the chapter itself. From the, I'm going to follow the order of the chapter um, itself. Many people don't, they, they chop it around, but I think we'll follow just simply um, through the actual chapter. The first thing you will find in this chapter is man as he was created. Now this is of tremendous importance. Man as he was created. First of all, let's look at his creation in verse 7. From, by the way, this is from verse 5 to verse 7. We've got man as created, as he was created. First of all, let's look at his creation, his actual creation in verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Now, underline these things. The Lord God formed and breathed into and man became. That's very important. The thing that we find out straight away is simply this. There was no evolution over man. Man was the production of God's hand. But he was more than the mere production of God's hand. <coughs> Whilst we can say that the rest of creation was brought into being by the word of God, possibly uh, in a rather distant way, we don't know, there's a suggestion of that, that the Lord spake and it was done. With man, God actually fashioned him. He actually created him. He produced him. He was the very work of his own hands. That immediately sets forth the intimate relationship between man and his creator. It says the Lord God formed man. Formed and breathed into Man, you and I, were not originally just the creation of God's hands. We had something of God committed to us. God did something. Here it is spoken of like this. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became. So now, look very carefully. Now, listen carefully. First of all, we have... <clears throat> the formation of something, the fashioning of something. Then we have something given of God, deposited by God in that being. And then, as a result of whatever was committed or given, man became something. Something else happened. In other words, first of all, God formed the body. Then he, he gave something of himself, he imparted something of himself. And then, the body and what God imparted produced something else. So you see, straight away, there's a threefold work here. There's a body produced by God's hands, something imparted of God, not created, but imparted, and then something created out of the two. Man became. Man became. Lord God formed, breathed into, man became. 
Let's look at it now from this standpoint. Let's look at it from the question of man's constitution. The first thing you note about this is the dust of the ground. Now you and I have been made of the dust of the ground. Remember the Lord said to us, Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. We were made, our bodies were made from the very dust of the ground. And the word is very interesting. It is the word Adama, from which we get the word Adam. And it, spoke, it speaks, it's a word used throughout scripture ground, of arable soil, or top soil. It's the red soil. It's red earth. And a reddish colour. It's got that uh, meaning of um, a soil or a mould, reddish colour. So first of all, man's body was made out of the dust of the ground. Now you note another very interesting. It, it mentions water, which is very interesting. It distinctly says in verse 5 and verse 6 that it sort of underlines the fact that there was something to do with water. It hadn't rained, it said. And furthermore, it talks of the mists. So we find that man's body is evidently a combination of water and the dust of the ground. I think you'll find this rather interesting. It's rather technical, but I, I wrote it up because I wasn't going to read it, and I thought, well, you may find it rather interesting. Science has found by chemical analysis of the body of man that its substance is composed of the very same elements as the soil which forms the crust of the earth and the limestone that lies embedded underneath. They are simply carbon, chlorine, phosphorus, fluorine, nitrogen, magnesium, silicon, aluminium, potassium, sodium, calcium, iron, manganese, titanium, oxygen, hydrogen. Some of these appear in very small and minute proportions, but all are within the human body. Carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen constitute for the most part the soft tissues and fluids of man's body while bones or harder parts consist of calcium, the phosphate, and carbonate of lime. So there you have, in a rather remarkable way, straight away, the very fact that man's body was made from the dust of the ground and has something else as well. God has formed it out of the soil. It's got the very elements of the soil in it. You also know, don't you, that this body of ours is nearly all water element of water is very largely in it. The most remarkable thing. So you see, here right in Genesis 2, you've got first of all our bodies formed out of the dust of the ground. It evidently had a reddish colour. And as far as we can make out, the human body evidently had a certain colour <coughs> about it. It wasn't probably very terribly deep or distinct, but it was there. That's the body. Now the second thing you note in this verse 7 is the breath of life. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and um, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
Here again, although we can't press this too far, the Hebrew is the plural, what we call the plural of excellence. It really, literally, is the breath of life. The breath of life in the plural. But actually, this word life here is hardly ever used in the singular. So you can't press it too far. Nevertheless, it is interesting that God's breath into man did produce two kinds of life. First was the spiritual life, and the other was what we call a soulish life, or sensual life. Man became a living soul. Something was imparted, and something became as a result of what was imparted. Now that in itself is very, very interesting. Because, you see, it immediately gets us to this fundamental point that man is a spiritual creature. Man isn't just a body. And he's not just like the rest of creation. Now, the rest of creation are living souls, as we shall see in a moment. Man's living soul has come in a quite unique and a special way. We are told about the other living creatures, the other things that have life within them, or soul within them. And uh, whilst the same word is used, it's quite obvious by Genesis 2 that man's soul is different to the soul of an animal. An animal has a soul, but it's not the same as the soul of a human being. Because man's soul has come into being because of his spirit. God breathed into him and man became a living soul. His soul is the, as it were, the production of God breathing into him. Now that's very important that we should understand man's constitution. First of all, he has a body made of the dust of the ground and water. He then has what we call the breath of life. It's interesting, you know, that in the Word of God, the Lord always refers to him as the father of our spirits and the creator of our souls. He never calls himself the father of our souls. If you look through Scripture, you'll never find that phrase, the father of our souls. He is always the father of our spirit. He is the creator of our souls. So you see, man has first uh, here, and by this breath of life, was constituted a spiritual creature. That is, there was breathed into him something, now listen carefully, which could answer to God. Just like woman was made to answer to man, God breathed into man something alone which could answer to God, which could correspond to God, which was according to God. Do you understand? Which could be the complement of God. Without that spirit, man would always be a mere servile creation. But because God imparted something, man became a, cre a, 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 a being that could answer to God. That could be, whilst original and whilst responsible, could walk in fellowship with God in a way which could satisfy God. That's very, very, very important to understand. Man, therefore, has not only got a body, he's got a spirit. And then you know, the other thing about verse 7 is, and man became a living soul. Now, if you look through uh, elsewhere, you'll find this word is used of other creatures. 
Yet here it's quite obviously it is unique. This amazing thing that we call a soul. It is somehow the production of the spirit and the body. You know, of course, that the spirit and the flesh are always at work. They belong to different realms. They belong to different spheres. God's thought, now here, God's thought was that there should be something like a mediator between the two. And that mediator is the soul. The medium. The thing in between. Which could somehow translate things from down here, uh, through the soul up there, and at the same time, God could translate things from up there down through here. So, of course, you, you, you can't see my spirit. You can see my body. You can feel my soul. And yet, my most essential, the most essential part of my being is my spirit. Now, it's in the soul that Satan has done his work. He has cut that spirit off and caused it to cease its function and has so perverted and distorted that soul beyond all recognition that it's become the battleground of our lives. It is our soul, that's where we feel things, that's where we feel so awful, that's where we feel so selfish, that's where we're all the time aggressive, where we're wanting this and we're wanting that and we're after this and other, and that's where we've got all the battle. The battle's on there between our soul and, and the Lord himself. It's the most remarkable thing when you see it, you know, this trinity. Mind you, you can't take it too far, but you know, it's amazing how the, this, this thought of, the, of, of a trinity goes through almost everything. It almost seems to be a principle in everything. So you've got it to, again, you see, in the whole, you've got a natural creation, man and God. God's whole thought was that man should be the medium between him and the creation, or creation and him. Man was to be God, the meeting place of God, you see, where God met the creation, or where the creation met God. And in our little beings, we've got the same thing in us. We've got a body, we've got a soul, we've got a spirit. And the soul is the thing that, as it were, is in between. Do you see that? So we need to see that quite clearly. God's whole thought there was that we have a, a, our constitution as a body, spirit, which is absolutely the primary thing, and the soul, which is, as it were, between the two. Now, another thing, we've looked at his creation, we've looked at his constitution. Now let's look at what, I, the only way I could uh, describe this is his conditional destiny. I could not find another word somehow to, to express what I mean. Man had a conditional destiny. This is very, very important for us to understand. Man, as created, was not holy, was not uh, perfect, was not sinful, and was not evil. He was innocent. And that's a very important thing for us to understand. We always somehow think that Adam was perfect or was holy. He wasn't holy. Uh, uh, Adam had the absence of anything. He was created, and he was there. He was innocent, as yet he had not been tested. 
and God's whole thought was his destiny lay on a condition. And the condition was what we call here in this chapter the tree of life and marriage. What those two things set forth. That was the condition. If man were to come by the tree of life into all God's thought over this question of marriage, his destiny was assured. In fact, he had a limitless destiny. A limitless destiny. If only he would come by the one condition that God put down. Actually, God never put down that as a condition. He, he gave the condition in the negative. He said, you are not, you are not to eat of that thing. Not to take that road. Not to become that kind of person. This is the kind. There, therefore, you do see, don't you, that when man was first created, he was not holy, he wasn't perfect, he wasn't sinful, he wasn't evil, he was innocent. And his whole destiny uh, was literally hinged on the question of whether he... Uh, uh, came into what the tree of life stood for and what marriage stood for. And then the other thing I want you to notice about this, these two verses is man's capacity. Man's capacity as created. In, in God's original thought in man. This thrills me. Do you know that the capacity of man was to be indwelt by an infinite God. Now that is the most marvellous thing in the whole of creation. Only God could conceive of a finite human creature that could contain the infinite. Only God could conceive of a vessel in which he himself could actually be. It's absolutely unbelievable. Even we, our minds reel back. This is what it means to be a Christian, of course. Only we realize this. We've got the infinite in the finite. We've got the omnipotent in the weak. We've got, oh, we've got the God that created all things and purposes all things. And he's utterly sovereign and immutable. And he's in here, in this body formed out of the dust of the ground. That's the capacity of man. A capacity to be God-indwelt and God-possessed. That's a tremendous capacity. Of course, the tree of life is something individual. Marriage is something corporate. But there you've got the secret. By way of the tree of life, man was to come into utter dependence upon God. That was the kind of life God intended him to live. He was to find the very ability for his life in God's life. He was to find the very meaning of his existence in the life of God. He was to realize his destiny by the life of God, by eating, as it were, the tree of life, being incorporated in into God's life. But then far more wonderful, the infinite God can only fill our little finite vessels, can he not? He can only fill them like a little thimbleful, and he needs the whole million of his body. 
knit together, fused into one, to be able to contain an infinite God. That's there in Genesis 2. Man's capacity. You see then that man was never made an antisocial creature. Man, the principle of man's very creation is corporate. And this whole antisocial love of loneliness, this perversion, which comes from an old man. There's a right kind of loneliness, of course, and that's um, a kind of loneliness that God develops. It's a loneliness that finds its fullest expression when we're the most linked. Okay. We're right in the midst of things and wholly bound together. We've got that sense of just being shut up to God alone on issues. Just can't uh, run to everything and everyone. As we take others in, we, we, we know we're shut up to God. We're alone. And yet we're absolutely part of each other. Uh, it's altogether different to this other kind of loneliness that sort of, you know, is, is an antisocial thing, a perverted thing, an embittering thing, an ensouring thing. It makes things sour and, and somehow brings a nasty taste. That kind of thing, poisonous. So you see, you've got man's capacity to be indwelt by God. That was our original capacity as created by God. And then even perhaps just as wonderful, our capacity was to be able to represent God. Now that's a remarkable thing, but it says quite clearly in the word, Christ is the head of God and Man, uh, Christ is, I'm sorry, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of the woman. There's a sense in which we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent God, we're God's vice regent. The whole thought of our being in his image and after his likeness. Representative. And actually, the whole question of authority and dominion and service is linked with, with being the representatives of God. See? It's being like God, our likeness to God, our being conformed to his image, which is the measure in which we can exercise any authority or really serve the Lord. You can't just do this, do that, hop into a college, go through a few months and then go out to the field and think you're serving the Lord. That's not the way. The whole question of service is linked with how much we are like the Lord and what the Lord is really conforming us to. Out of that comes our authority and our service. And then you note too that God gave man a capacity for infinite increase of knowledge. You have no idea of the spirit, of the capacity of the spirit within you and within me. You see, that spirit isn't a creation. That spirit is an impartation. It is something which God is able, as it were, to expand and to expand and to expand. We've got all eternity 
just go on learning. And he was being an awful dull, the very thought of just learning and learning and learning. But you see, that's it. We've got a capacity for it. And one day when we're there, we shall realize what a capacity we've got to absorb, to understand people. I'm not saying that we shall ever become as infinite as God himself. That's the whole thought of the body. We just can't. We're not made like that. But we have got a capacity for infinite knowledge. A knowledge which just knows no end. Mm -hmm. 